Welcome to A World Where Living Works, stories of science and survival, bringing together our heads and our hearts to build a suicide-safer world. Talking openly about suicide is so important, but we also recognise that listening to this series may bring up some tough emotions. If so, please talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you are feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. You're listening to A World Where Living Works, and I'm your host, Kim Borrowdale. First of all, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land we're meeting on today from whatever beautiful lands you come from across the world, and also acknowledge the lived experience that people bring to suicide prevention, so the personal experiences of suicide and the pain it brings to our lives, but also the drive to make a positive difference. Today's episode is all about suicide prevention in schools. How can we safely and effectively build suicide intervention skills in young people? What have we learned about doing this in schools? And what about those around young people? How do we support skills development in teachers, parents, carers? I'm talking today to Associate Professor Joe Robinson at Origin Youth Mental Health Organisation in Australia, where she leads a program of work focused on youth suicide prevention. Joe has also undertaken evaluation of the efficacy and acceptability of the Safe Talk program for secondary school students. Welcome, Joe. Hi, Kim. Thank you. Also with us today is Kathleen Snyder, Senior Training Coach of ASSIST, training for 31 years and a Safe Talk instructor. Kathleen has a Master of Social Work, is a law enforcement and community chaplain, and is the California representative for Living Works Education, supporting more than 500 trainers in that region. Thanks for joining us, Kathleen. My pleasure. So first of all, I thought we could tell our audience a little bit more about you, your professional background, your organisation's focus on suicide prevention and mental wellbeing, and just a bit more about your why. So how did you come to be here today talking about this subject? Perhaps we could start with you, Jo. Sure. So I'm Jo Robinson, and I work at Origin, which is a combined sort of research and clinical service that operates across North and West Melbourne. But we also sort of have a national remit when it comes to things like advocacy and policy and training and those sorts of things. But we offer clinical services to young people aged 12 to 25 across our catchment area. And we also have an integrated research centre which does research into kind of all sorts of different things that affect young people's mental health and well-being. So mood disorders, early psychosis, substance misuse, and suicide prevention. And I guess I've been at Origin now for sort of 15, 16 years and grown the research group from an N of one, which was just me, to a team of about sort of 15 staff and students. And we have a research program that spans all sorts of settings, I suppose, you know, where we interact with young people. So we do lots of work in clinical settings. So we've got work going on, for example, in GP, primary care settings, in emergency departments. We do a lot of work around online safety when it comes to suicide prevention with young people. So how to enable young people to have safe conversations about suicide online and on social media platforms. And we've also got a big and expanding program of work 
in schools. And that's kind of partly in schools across our clinical catchment area, but we've also done bits and pieces of work in other settings as well, in, in schools, I suppose, in other parts of the country. Great, fantastic. Thank you for that background. And Kathleen, tell us a bit more about your professional experience in this area. Thank you. I have been privileged to be a part of Living Works training since February 1989. I was a volunteer with Sacramento Suicide Prevention following the death of my husband. A couple of years after I lost my husband to suicide, I started volunteering, became their youth suicide prevention coordinator. And then there was this opportunity, Living Works came to California. It was the first place outside of Canada. And they wanted two people from every county to become trainers. And so the county I lived in, I became one of their trainers, fell in love, I had the privilege of being trained by the developers. Um, so by Richard Ramsey and the whole team of developers. And it was just an amazing, amazing experience. And so going out and talking to people about suicide, helping to empower them to have conversations that they feel like this is that dirty S word, and to then feel better equipped to then have that difficult conversation with somebody. We get rid of some of those myths. And so that has been just profound to me, those aha moments that people have. And then I've been privileged enough that Works got a contract through what is called CalMesa. It was a 1% tax on millionaires. And so back in 2011, Living Works got a contract to support bringing more trainers into California, which is why we have such exceptionally high numbers, and then support them, and then support the counties. We have 58 counties in California. So as they're developing suicide prevention strategies, as they're being impacted by losses and they're not quite sure what to do, we will have conversations about where they're at, figuring out what it is that they might want to do and work with them without trying to sell them anything because most of our counties have trainers, but even the trainers get overwhelmed. And then this pandemic has caused a lot of grief with the providers. They're supposed to be helping the community and they're grieving as well because this is a whole new thing to be able to do telemedicine and therapy long distance. So I'll call just to see how they're doing and often they'll break down in tears. So I think Having the friendly voice, I think my graduate degree, I spend far more of that trainer supporting people than I ever would if I was in private practice. Why about suicide is my grandfather died by suicide before I was born when my mother was young. My mother attempted when I was the same age she was when her father died. And then I lost my husband to suicide. So it has been many generations. And when I began the early research, not online, it was in paper back in the 80s, I started to see that my family was at risk and wanted to figure out how to break my family's coping mechanism and to see what I could do to reverse the trends that were taking place in my family. So I had to look and read and research and learn what I didn't even know. And it has been quite a journey. And I'm, I'm happy for the gift that came out of the tragedy don't like the tragedy and wish that no one had to go through it. And yet I'm grateful, on the other hand, for what I've learned about myself, what I've learned about people who are struggling, and the hopefulness for someone who is. I didn't want anyone else to go through what I went through. Sadly, they do. And I can come alongside of them, which is where I've also served as a chaplain. 
Thank you, Kathleen. Thank you for sharing your personal experiences. I know many of us come into this space with our own experiences and, um, as you say, wanting to stand alongside people and find a way to not only understand but also prevent other people from experiencing that. So thank you. So in terms of the young people in communities, perhaps it might be helpful to, you've both got a lot of experience working with young people, is to talk a little bit about what we know in relation to suicide prevention and young people in terms of risk factors and protective factors. We will talk a little bit about suicide prevention in school settings and what we know about that, but I thought it might be good for our listeners to hear a little bit about what we already know from young people themselves and the work that you've both done, what that experience is like for them and what, as you said, Kathleen, the coping mechanisms and tools and skills that we can help young people to utilise when it comes to managing their own well-being. Joe, I know Origin works with a lot of young people and are really driven by their experiences. What can you tell us about the things that you've learned about the risk factors and protective factors? Yeah, so I guess talking to young people about their experiences and what they think the problems and solutions are is probably part of Origin's DNA. I think it's what we call our core business. And I guess the perspectives that we've got probably come, and certainly the the things that drive our work or underpin the work that we do come from a couple of different perspectives, I suppose. One is the research literature. I'm a researcher, so can't help myself but to go off and find out kind of what does the evidence tell us and what does the literature say about what the key risk factors or protective factors are or the drivers that lead a young person to a suicidal crisis. And then the other side of things is what young people tell us themselves. So I think probably there's a couple of things to say, really. I think one of the things that we know are one of the the key risk factors for a young person finding themselves in a suicidal crisis is the presence of mental ill health. So we know that the majority of young people who do end up taking their own lives have a mental health problem of some form whether that's diagnosed or not diagnosed, there tends to be, you know, many young people who die by suicide will be in contact with services. They'll have a diagnosable disorder, often depression or anxiety, something like that. Often other disorders like borderline personality disorder and those sorts of things are very common in young people who tragically take their own lives. We also know that there are a lot of young people from different types of studies that we've done that do have probably what we would call a diagnosable disorder or signs or symptoms of mental ill health that might not necessarily have been picked up by mental health services. So there'll be a lot of young people who'll be out there struggling in the community but aren't getting help for a whole range of reasons. And that might be because they haven't yet worked out that they need help, so they haven't sought help. And there's lots of reasons for that. It might be because they've tried to get help and help hasn't worked very well for them. So again, you know, one of the things that we do at Origin is we're we're very driven by service reform and really designing a service system that meets the needs of young people so that is able to respond to young people in a way that they might want to be responded to when they want to, to receive support. So unfortunately, I think we do know that lots of young people that seek help don't necessarily get it. So we're kind of very driven by trying to improve that experience for young people. So I think that presence of mental ill health or mental disorder is is a big deal. We also know that, you know, one of the other key risk factors that we see is previous suicide-related behaviour, so that we know if a young person has engaged in a previous suicide attempt or engaged in self-harm, that's a key indicator, I should say, of the potential for future 
risk again for all sorts of different reasons and one of the things that we you know we spend a lot of time advocating for is the fact that if a young person does find themselves in a suicidal crisis or engaging in a suicide attempt or self-harm and seeks help that they get the help that they need and we know that all too often young people particularly young females I think who engage in self-harm type behavior and they might try and reach out and seek help, don't necessarily get the help that they need for all sorts of reasons associated with stigma and shame and judgment and perceptions around what self-harm means across the community. But again, we spend a lot of time advocating that if a young person is engaging in self-harm and and certainly expressing suicide risk, that they get the help that they need because that does place them at higher risk in the future. And it's an opportunity for intervention, if you like. But there's also all sorts of other things, I think, that lead a young person into a suicidal crisis that might not necessarily be related to things like psychiatric problems or or past self-harm. And, you know, there are things like interpersonal crises, lifestyle stressors, and, you know, we are living through a pandemic at the moment. So, you know, lifestyle stressors are very high for young people. There are high rates of kind of, you know, feelings of anxiety or people are anxious about things like employment opportunities, you know, or they might be struggling more at school than they would usually. We know that interpersonal conflict, so things like trouble with friends or partners or parents and those sorts of things can often tip a young person into a suicidal crisis when they might not necessarily have those coping skills or problem solving skills to manage those difficulties in a, in an alternative way. So I think there are lots of reasons that a young person finds themselves in a suicidal crisis and they often kind of can happen together. So I think none of those individual risk factors are a pre... Um, what, what's, what's the best way to say it? I think it doesn't mean if you're feeling or experiencing any of those things that you're automatically going to find yourself in a suicidal crisis. But many people that do are experiencing those sorts of difficulties, if that makes sense. And they can act cumulatively. So what you might have as a young person that's been living with depression or anxiety for a long, long time and managing that reasonably well, but that then might get overlaid by what we might call sort of more proximal risk factors like periods of conflict or particular adverse life events and lifestyle stressors. And then taken together, those things might tip somebody into a crisis point, if that makes sense. Absolutely. And similar to what we know in many ways about adult life stresses and the the combination of those as well. So it's interesting to hear about young people and thinking about what sort of problem solving skills and coping mechanisms they've got and what we can learn across different age groups. Yeah, probably the other thing that I might add is that, you know, we do know that young people who have survived traumatic past experiences, you know, whatever that might be. So that might be kind of, you know, childhood abuse and those sorts of things might also be more vulnerable. And the other thing that I should have said is that young people who have been exposed to the suicide of somebody else are also quite vulnerable to suicide. So we know that with young people, they're quite susceptible to what other people are doing and they do learn a certain type of coping strategy, if you like. So we do know that that exposure to suicide of a family member, so, you know, reflecting back on on your story, Kathleen, you know, we know that, that young people who have been exposed to the suicide of a parent or a friend might be particularly vulnerable. And so we'll need some additional attention and some help bolstering some coping skills so that they have got different resources up their sleeve, if you like, when they have a tough time. But we also do a lot of work looking at, you know, how we might interrupt that cycle, I think, for young people who might be exposed to the suicide or suicide-related behaviour in a friend or a peer, how we can sort of identify that they might be vulnerable and offer them some alternative strategies. 
Great. Thanks, Joe. Kathleen, what would you like to add in terms of your experience in relation to young people and the people around young people? I appreciate all that Joe was saying, and I find it quite fascinating because if we pull out the DSM, which is what you use here in, in the States, and I'm not sure what diagnostics materials or what tools, um, so many people actually have a diagnosable mental health issue. The majority of people actually have a diagnosable mental health issue. I don't sleep well, so I would be in the DSM. Many people, most people function in some form or fashion with whatever their mental health issue or diagnosis is. And yet there are those, many as Joe said, never have been diagnosed and who are struggling. What we know is that person's perception of pain, and whether it's pain, it's physical pain, mental pain, psychological pain. Ed Schneiman coined the term psych ache back in the 1960s that psychological ache that is so deep and so profound and feels untouchable. And one thing I think for us as parents, if I could speak to them for a moment, is sometimes we really share a lot of our successes, but we haven't necessarily shared with them where we failed epically and how we got through that epic failure. And I think if we could help young people understand, oh, you blew it, isn't it, it feels awful, and I'm so sorry you're in such pain. And let's get through this together. And then when we're through this, I'd really like to talk to you about when I epically failed and the people who came alongside of me so that I could get through it too because I didn't see a way out. And they helped me see it. And if you'll let me help you see it through. Some ways to be able to help because I don't think what we know about suicide is most people do not want to die. They want to make the pain go away. And they want to live, but they don't know how to live with the pain. And so if we can help them figure out, yes, this is a moment in time, and maybe that moment in time is months. Maybe for some people, that moment in time is years that they've been struggling. If they can let us, and that's hard sometimes to let someone in because they've been betrayed, because they've had false promises, any number of reasons. But if they'll let us in, and sometimes it's, well, you know, I've had so many promises before and no one helped. Sounds like you've been really disappointed. I'm wondering if you'll just try it one more time and you'll allow me to come alongside of you. And it's going to be hard and it might be messy. Kind of like you clean out your closet. You make this huge mess before we figure out what needs to be tossed, what needs to be kept, and what needs to be donated. We can do that with our own personal crap, if I can use that term and get rid of that crud that we're carrying around because we're so afraid of somebody seeing it or judging us because who knows what they've judged us for. I think if we're able to help them understand we didn't get through it because we were all together. My blessed mom, who has since passed, but she used to tell my daughter, oh, your mother got straight A's and my daughter would come in and I went, oh, no, dear, one semester I got straight A's because it was easy that semester. I didn't get straight A's. I struggled like everyone else. It's okay. Where you are is okay. And I'd like to help you get to where you want to get to. And I think if we're able to help parents understand, we're able to help the young people understand. I'm 63 and I can assure you I've never had an employer ask me what my GPA was. What is your grade point average? No one asks that. And yet 
Kids are so bound up that they have to get the highest grades to get into the best college. You can get in by some of your community involvement. You can get in by other things. Helping parents understand that, helping young people understand that, that there are other ways to get through this world. We need the garbage collector and we need the mechanic and we need the cook as much as we need the doctor and the psychologist. We need them all. And sometimes I think we forget and we start cherry picking who is, you should have this degree, you should have that. And instead of allowing them to be the artist, the dancer, the whatever it is that they're gifted at and helping to cultivate that. Great point. Thank you, Kathleen. In terms of schools and the pressures, and you're talking about grades and grade point average and things like that, we were discussing about suicide prevention and mental well-being in schools. And if school is a place of pressure as well as support, how do you use that setting as a place where you can support young people to do the peer support or stand alongside each other, have the teachers and parents stand alongside them. I'm interested to know, Joe, from the research side of things, what does the evidence tell us about a school setting as a suitable place to, you know, it is the environment that young people are in for long periods of time every day, but I understand that also the dichotomy of pressure and support. So what does the research tell us about suicide prevention in schools? Yeah, I think it's a really important point, actually. I think young people more and more are under so much pressure to perform. I see it now with my own daughter and certainly with the young people that we work with. It feels very different to when I went through the school system where it kind of, I hate to say this, and particularly, you know, certainly somebody who's now an academic, you know, but where it didn't really seem to matter and you kind of just scraped by and really we were mostly driven by just getting good enough grades to, to get to uni so we could get out of home and away from our parents and those sorts of things. And it didn't feel like there was quite so much pressure and there was quite so much competition as there is now. So I do really feel for some of the young people that, you know, that we're supporting in terms of that drive to get the best grades and uni places are so hard to get and employment is so hard. Home ownership feels so unachievable for young people these days. I do think the pressures are, are very different. And, you know, a lot of those pressures are cultivated, come from home and a lot of them come from school settings themselves. But I think probably certainly going back to kind of what we know from the research is that schools are an accepted place to do suicide prevention. Certainly increasingly, we're seeing lots of suicide prevention activities and research programs operating in school settings. We did an activity a few years ago where we looked at suicide prevention policies here across Australia, but also around the world. And most policies identified young people as a vulnerable population that needed a particular type of response. And most policies identified schools as a key setting for intervening and supporting young people when they, when it came to suicide prevention activities, I suppose. So I would say definitely that schools are seen as an acceptable place to conduct suicide prevention activities. I think there's a range of different types of activity that are important to deliver in schools which range from kind of those types of activities that really focus on building resilience and building coping skills so that young people are better equipped to cope with life stresses, whatever they might be. But they range right through to then sort of more pointy end kind of interventions for young people who are presenting at risk of suicide. So I think there's a range of approaches that are now acceptable in school settings. I mean, there's probably a couple of things to say. I think certainly there's been a little bit of a shift I think from what I can see in terms of 
willingness to address suicide directly in a school setting and to actually use the, the S word, Kathleen, as you referred to before, there's a real issue around the language we use when it comes to suicide and our willingness to talk about it openly. And that's been really pervasive in schools, but I do feel there's a little bit of a shift and I'm happy to talk a bit more about that actually. But I also think, you know, the other thing that we do see in school settings and certainly what the research tells us is the most effective programs that operate in schools tend to be these quite multifaceted programs. So often we apply a public health kind of framework to suicide prevention activities where you've got sort of universal kind of activities that target whole populations regardless of, of their level of risk or propensity to risk. Then you've got selective interventions which might target your gatekeepers, so your teachers or the school counsellors, or might kind of serve to better detect young people who might be feeling vulnerable to suicide and target them. And then you've got your indicated interventions or targeted interventions which are directed at young people who are already showing signs of being at risk of suicide. And certainly what the research tells us is research programs that target each of those levels, if you like, tend to be the most effective. So where you've got, for example, an education program, and we're doing some work around this in schools at the moment, which I can speak to if, if you would like. But, you know, for example, a program where you've got a universal intervention where you're perhaps providing education to all school students around identifying vulnerabilities or risk in themselves or boosting resilience and those sorts of things, generating mental health awareness and education. Those sorts of programs combined perhaps with a case detection type intervention where you're then identifying young people who might be vulnerable to suicide and then providing some support or referral for those young people. Those sorts of programs when operated or when delivered kind of in a combined way tend to be the most effective and the most acceptable to young people and to school staff and we're testing a program like that at the moment or I should say pre-COVID we were testing an intervention that operated a bit like that and that's where our work with Safe Talk kind of started a few years ago. So that's our universal intervention where we're delivering Safe Talk training or we will be once we're allowed out of our houses again when we deliver Safe Talk training to all school students regardless of risk but in our attempt to evaluate that and make sure it's, it's working for people and doing the things that it seeks to do, we're also able to identify young people who might be at risk of suicide. And then those young people are then eligible for a, a more targeted intervention that specifically is delivered to them by the school counsellor to help manage their suicide risk or what have you. So I think what the evidence tells us is those sorts of programmes that are kind of delivered in tandem tend to be the most effective, I think. One of the other things that I might say is for a long time, I think schools were very nervous about talking openly about suicide and using the S word in a school setting. And I think that was the result. It was very well intentioned. And I think it was the result of some very early work that identified that there was the potential for harm by talking about suicide. We didn't necessarily know how young people were absorbing the information that we were giving them. And we didn't know what was going on for those young people. And we didn't know how they might internalize that information, what they might do with it. So for a long time, schools were very nervous to talk directly to young people about suicide. And they were afraid that it might put ideas into people's heads and those sorts of things. We've done a lot of work at Origin, but so have other colleagues from around the world to really try and you know, nut that out, I suppose. And what we've been able to identify is that that's not the case. And it is quite safe to talk to young people about suicide in all sorts of settings, including in school settings, providing it's done with, with care and sensitivity and compassion and that those young people who might be vulnerable then are able to get 
the support that they need. So it's been really good to be able to kind of bust that myth, if you like, that it's not okay to talk about suicide. And when we've done consultations with young people and we've talked to them about their experiences, one of the things that they've repeatedly said to us is we want adults to talk to us about this topic openly. We don't want to be patronized. You know, if adults can't talk to us about this topic, how can we then go to them to seek help if they're telling us it's not okay to, to talk about this? So I think it's important, you know, and it might be important for the listeners as well to kind of be reminded that it is okay to talk about suicide publicly as long as we do it with, with the care and compassion it deserves. That's a fantastic message. If people take away just one thing, I would hope it would be that from this podcast episode because I think we've got a long way in smashing that myth, but there's still a ways to go for sure. Kathleen, what about your experiences in California and the work that you do supporting people across the world? Have you seen a similar thing with the recognition from people in school settings that they want to be talking openly about suicide with students and among the student population, of course, in a, in a safe way? But have you seen that increase over time in recent years? Yeah, Joe did an outstanding job of talking about this progression because in my early years of doing this in the 1980s and even 90s, there would be somebody on a campus who goes, oh, we can't talk about it because if we talk about it, we're going to cause it. And I went, oh, that myth was just busted a long time ago. But the fear in, in this being that dirty S word, and it's interesting, and kids will get more attention if they use a four-letter S word as opposed to using suicide. And as Joe eloquently said, that if we're not willing to have an open, honest conversation, about suicide with our colleagues and these students, then why in heaven's name should they come and talk to us? And it's unfortunately after there's been a suicide on some campuses still to this day, we won't talk about it because then we're giving attention. And I've been working with a county here in California that's had a number of suicides. And so when I went and met with the superintendents of the schools and behavioral health, what we ended up talking about was they really needed some grief work. And even, and this is just earlier this year when we met, and they said, well, we were told that you can't do this and you can't do that. You can't talk about it and you can't honor it. And I said, well, how would you honor the death of any other student in a car accident or of a terminal illness? It would be the same way you honor the death of this student. You don't make them a hero. You don't make them a villain. Somebody that was on your campus and a part of your school family has died. And you need to mourn that. But that said, we also need to be mindful that a lot of the teachers are struggling. And who can they talk to if they're having thoughts of suicide? And then there are students who are worried about their parents or their grandparents. And I remember at one junior high school, a girl shared that her grandfather had taken his life on her birthday. And her question was, didn't he love me? And so here you have this precious little child who's carrying around this pain and this grief. And some of the kids, excuse me, young people, will tell their friend, and their friend doesn't know what to do with it. So now you have a friend who's carrying this burden. And so equipping them to say, there are good secrets, you know, who do you think is cute? That might be a secret you keep. But if your friend's talking about suicide, about wanting to end their life, this is not a secret that we keep. So you have to find a safe and trusted adult. Now, clearly, as a parent, I would hope that my child would want to come and talk to me. But if they didn't feel that they could talk to me, they need a safe and trusted adult. Who would that be? And I remember one of my daughters, my daughter's almost 30 now, but when she was in high school, one of her friends came over to the house. And it was like 
8.30 at night. And he says, I don't want to talk about it. Okay. And as I sat there letting him not talk about it, and he talked and he talked and he talked because he didn't want to talk about it. So sometimes for us as adults, we just need to create a safe space. And all I had to say was, wow, that sounds rough. Well, and then another thing, but I don't want to talk about it. Okay. So he didn't talk about it for about an hour while he shared all that he needed to share. We don't have to have an advanced degree. As Joe said, that caring, that respect, that safe environment that doesn't say there's any judgment, it's probably that person's beating themselves up over something that they didn't do, that they did do, that they wish they'd done differently. But to say, regardless of what it is that has happened right here in this moment, how are you doing? Are you thinking about ending your life? Are you thinking about suicide? If so, then that's what we need to talk about and have that safe, honest conversation that you're not in trouble. I'm not going to hurt you. I want to get the right kind of help for you. So the schools here in California have made a lot of progress. We've had legislation over the last several years that has mandated that schools have policies and procedures, protocols. Many of them have done due diligence. Many of them have done a quick, here's a four-page, if this, then go here, which is trying to cover their liability, not necessarily training people um, as fully. Many of them have done fabulous work, so I don't want to deny that. And then right now, LivingWorks has an agreement that we're reaching out to all of the middle school and high school students and staff and providing our online training start, which is 90 minutes, and it's designed for ages 13 and up. And that's exciting because we're starting with all of the teachers or the school staff, not just teachers, but school staff, so that we have that network of safety. We've got some gatekeepers if the students bring up their thoughts of suicide. And then next month, we'll roll it out to students because we want to know that if they have thoughts of suicide, they have some identified safe people on their campus. I wish the legislation had provided funding for parents. It did not. But we want to get all those people, you know, maybe it's a coach, maybe it's the parent, maybe it's a grandparent, maybe it's your best friend's parent who's really a safe person to talk to, so that we all have some sort of common language and know where to go to get help on behalf of this student. And maybe for us, because we're scared, what if I say the wrong thing? And what I've told people to say is, what if you said that? I don't want to say the wrong thing. And I don't have all these skills and I don't have a degree. I'm not a counselor, but you really matter to me and I want to help. So if we could have this conversation, um, I'd really like to help you. I think if we could just have that kitchen table kind of conversation, it would really take away so much of that stigma and taboo around suicide so that people could go, oh, you're having those thoughts. I've had those thoughts too. No, not you. Yeah. Well, what helped you get through? Blah, blah, blah. And maybe that would help you. But instead of us fearing, we could be transparent and authentic on both sides. You know, I don't have all the answers and I don't care how many initials I have before or after my name. And when it's been my own child who's had thoughts of suicide, quite frankly, she said, I don't need counselor mom. I need my mom. Well, crud. Because I didn't realize I had that protective veil on. And she needed me to feel her pain. Well, then when I felt her pain, then the tears came for me because that's my child. 
But then there was a connection that was different than when I was in my head and in my therapeutic model, as it were. I had to let down and let my guard down and be real and accessible to my child. So I think that that's, for me, it's a, it's a lesson that says I, I just need to be as present and real, all the mindfulness present and real right here with the person that's in front of me, whether you're a teacher, a student, a parent, whatever role you're playing, a bus driver who sees the kids and sees the kids who are struggling. I think you raise a really interesting point, actually. And I think a lot of the reasons that we hear from young people that they don't want to tell somebody that they might feel suicidal is partly because they don't have the language and there's a stigma and a fear of being judged and those sorts of things. But they are quite anxious about how the person they tell will respond. And so they're kind of nervous that they might kind of freak out and won't know how to respond. And I think what we hear from adults that we talk to, and we've been working in schools for a long, long time, is that one of the reasons that people don't ask, partly again, because they don't want to put ideas into people's head, as we've spoken about, but they're also afraid of saying the wrong thing, as you mentioned, Kathleen, and they're, they're afraid of the answer. They're afraid of, they won't know what to do if the young person says, well, actually, yes, I have been feeling like that. And I think that's a real barrier for people. They don't want to raise the conversation because they don't know what to do if the young person says yes. And again, another kind of message that I always like to try and get across to people is, it's pretty hard to say the wrong thing. And actually what you need to just do is be, as you beautifully said, really, is be able to kind of sit with that young person and sit with their distress and listen to them without judgment. And actually often that's a great first step. You don't have to have all the answers. So don't be afraid to ask because you think you can't fix the problem. You don't have to fix the problem. You don't have to have all the answers. Be willing to support the young person, listen to them without judgment, and then be willing to walk with them to get that next step of help, whatever that might look like for them. And I think that that's really critical. And I think if people can get past the idea that you've got to fix everything, then it will make people feel much more empowered to be able to ask people these questions or have these conversations. And I think to that end, I I love what you said, Joel, um, is that if it was so easy for us to fix, they would have already fixed it. And so in some ways, if we just come in and go, well, all you need to do is we're really minimizing that struggle. And as Joe said, is to help walk with them through it and to say, this is really rough. And I can see that you're in a lot of pain. You just don't have to go through it alone. And I'm willing to come alongside of you through this. That's such a powerful thing. I think at any age, isn't it? To know that you don't have to face whatever it is by yourself. And especially, let's think back to puberty. It was not fun. I would not go back when I ask adults how many of them, if given a choice, would go back through puberty again. In probably 30 years time, I may have had less than a dozen hands go up. They'd go back to high school, but puberty was not fun. So if we can acknowledge that and remember, oh, that was awkward and we were clumsy. And as Joe said, they may not have the language to say what they're feeling. Other than they're feeling like they don't belong, they can't handle it anymore, it's too much. And maybe if we can help them create that safe place where they can say whatever it is that's going on and maybe even translate some of it, as it were, to bring forward what's going on with them and to normalize. They're not the first, they're not the last. Right now, in this moment, they're the primary focus. And that's really important for them to know that we see them, we hear their pain, and we want to help them get through it. Absolutely. Thanks, Kathleen. 
I think there's probably a couple of elements for our listeners to be aware of there. And one is actually looking from an individual perspective as people around young people and helping to understand and have that compassion and care. But I wonder, I could talk to both of you all morning, but I'm sure you've got other things on your plate today. But I wonder if someone's listening as a family member or a parent or carer or teacher, someone who has young people in their lives that they want to be open to those conversations and they're thinking that they want to be that person that someone could come to and they want to open themselves up to have that conversation. What are some things that they could do to better educate themselves on some of that language? I know you've talked about a couple of courses, but are there any tools and things that people should look at to just better educate themselves on how to have these conversations safely? Is this where I get to plug some of the work that we've been doing? <laughs> Look, there are lots of courses and tools and guidance out there for people who do want to have these conversations carefully or safely with young people. And I mean, we've been working with parents and educators as well as students around how to talk about suicide safely, how to identify that somebody might be at risk or vulnerable, and then how to respond to that. So the work certainly that we've been doing with Living Works has been around equipping young people. So we've been testing and evaluating the Safe Talk program with school students. But at the same time as doing that, we've been providing assist training for educators who are around those young people and then online training for parents of young people. So what we've taken is this very holistic approach to making sure that everybody is equipped to talk about suicide safely. Everybody's using the same sort of language and taking the same sort of approach because I don't think it would necessarily be the right thing to do to be equipping young people to talk safely about suicide or be able to go and you know be encouraging them to reach out to the adults in their lives and say they feel suicidal if those adults don't feel equipped to respond carefully and safely and feel comfortable themselves. So we've definitely taken that approach. We've also sort of taken the approach that young people often like to talk to other young people. So that was kind of part of our philosophy about the work we've been doing, certainly in school settings, which is around making sure that young people can talk to their friends or that people can spot the signs that their friends might not be traveling so well and know how to respond to that. But the other bit of work we've been doing has been online and that's where we've sort of developed all our chat safe suite of resources because the other environment where young people have these conversations is online as opposed to face-to-face and particularly currently living through a pandemic where most of us are living most of our lives online. It felt more important now than sort of ever that young people felt capable and equipped and confident and comfortable having these sorts of conversations with their friends in an online environment So we did develop a suite of resources called the ChatSafe resources that we developed to help young people talk safely about suicide on social media platforms. And we developed these kind of guidelines that we were very proud of. They were evidence-based guidelines because, again, we're kind of crusty old researchers. So we did this whole piece of research to inform the development of the guidelines, and we loved them and were very proud of them. But we were aware that young people might not read reams and reams of guidelines, however proud we might have been of them. So we then brought them to life with a co-designed and co-created social media campaign. So all the content from the guidelines has now been translated into like tiny videos and animations and those sorts of things that get pushed out through Snapchat and Instagram and platforms like that to make them much more accessible for young people 
But the other thing that we've done and we're about to launch is actually a resource that's based on the ChatSafe content that's specifically for educators. So again, we know that school staff are often the people that will be often the first to notice sometimes that a young person might not be traveling very well. And certainly the schools that we've been working with have told us that they might know that young people are talking online about a suicide death, particularly if there's been a death in the school community or the death of a celebrity or public figure. So we then wanted to develop some resources for school communities or school staff so that they could support young people to have these conversations safely rather than just shut the conversations down, which I think is historically what used to happen. We know that young people do turn to social media platforms to have lots of conversations, including about suicide, and that that's often a very important outlet for young people. They might want to have these conversations they might find social media platforms very accessible and they're freely available and they can talk to their friends 24 hours a day. And they can also help their friends as well as receive help, which I think young people find important. So we didn't want to shut the conversation down. We didn't want to say, no, this is not a safe platform for you. We wanted to give young people the tools and the agency to have these sorts of conversations safely. But we also recognized that we needed to equip the adults in young people's lives to be comfortable with young people having those conversations safely. Hence the resources that we're just about to kind of finalize and launch now. That's fantastic. Both of you, actually, I think that's an important message for people listening is that talking about suicide prevention and young people living well always needs to focus on the people around young people as well. So can't be done in isolation. We can implement as many programs as we like for young people. But as you say, if the adults in their lives and the teachers, the educators, the bus driver, if they're not equipped as well, both face-to-face and online communications, then it won't be as effective. So thank you for reinforcing that to look at what young people need, but also the supports around them. Is there just a final thought or piece of guidance for people who might be listening, either a young person or someone who's in a supporting role for a young person? Kathleen? One one thing, people come to a workshop, an assist workshop, a safe talk workshop, any workshop that I've done. It's a great opportunity when you go home to say, I just went through this workshop about suicide. I'm wondering, do you know anybody who's had thoughts of suicide? Have you ever had thoughts of suicide? And it opens up the conversation to be able to go, well, yeah, or no, why would you ask? Well, I went through this workshop and I just wonder, because I I think I learned some things here today. It just is an opportunity again. You know, we, we go to a movie. Did you see this movie? Oh, yeah. This is taking it again out of that dark space where we're afraid to have the conversation and to be able to say, I learned some things about it that I didn't even know. And Maybe you do. And as Joe was saying, these young people are very savvy. When I get a new phone, I have to have my children help set it up because I can't figure it out. So they're tech savvy and they're far more willing to be open and authentic and transparent, I think, than maybe sometimes we as adults are comfortable with. So whose issue is that, really? And I think for us to be able to say, wow, it's so different for you when I was growing up. Women had to wear dresses all the time to work. Isn't that kind of funny? It wasn't that long ago. You know, for you, it might feel like the dinosaurs were still roaming the earth, but it wasn't that long ago. 
this workshop kind of may be the same thing is to be able to say we can have a conversation. And, you know, I just want you to know that if you're ever having thoughts of suicide or somebody that you care about, I'd really like to help because you matter so much to me. And I don't want you to go through it alone. And if you're helping a friend, I'd like to help support you as you help them. So I think just to be able to be used today, use us as an excuse to be able to have a dialogue about suicide would be my message. I love that idea. I think everyone could do that after any of the course or workshop they're doing is not think about the application of it, but just use it as an icebreaker to get the conversation going. So that's, that's a great idea. Thanks, Kathleen. Joe, final thought from you? Yeah, I think, I think maybe one of the things that I would say is that, you know, we often paint suicide as a complex thing. You know, we often say, and we began this podcast with me talking about lots of complex risk factors that will lead a young person or anybody actually to the point of a suicidal crisis. So we do paint suicide as a, you know, it's a complex process. But what I would say is that with each of those kind of risk profiles or with each of those kind of risk factors comes an opportunity for intervention. So I think my final words would be that to not feel pessimistic about that and not feel overwhelmed by a sense of complexity that actually underneath everything, we're all human beings and that suicide is preventable. And we all have a role to play in that, whether that is as a clinician or a policymaker, or whether it's as a parent or an educator or a friend. So I think that's probably where I'd finish. That's a fantastic place to finish, Joe. Thank you. I'm really inspired by the work that I'm seeing from both of your organisations and in schools and the uptake from young people being involved in their own solutions, as well as the administrators and the policymakers. So I think we can be optimistic on an individual level and as a population or demographic of young people then. I like what you had to say about that. Thanks, Joe. Thank you both for your time and your insights today. I really appreciate you meeting with us and joining the podcast. I know, as I said earlier, I could talk all day about this, but if people would like to learn more about the work you're doing, you can visit Origins website and also Living Works and lots of other mental health organisations working with young people across the world doing a great job. So thank you so much to you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much, Kim. If you've enjoyed this episode, we'd love you to subscribe on the usual channels, write a five-star review, and most importantly, share it with your family, friends, and colleagues on social media, tagging Living Works. This podcast is brought to you by Living Works, a network of local suicide first aid trainers in your community and communities around the world. Visit livingworks.net to find out how you can play your part in suicide prevention. A reminder that if this episode has brought up tough emotions for you, talk to a trusted family member, friend or local support service about how you're feeling. Visit livingworks.net and click on Find Safety for International Crisis Services. We are there to help you.